0: you ready? Yeah. All right. What does that mean? What What does that mean? mean? It's just crawling. Welcome to the Theology on Mission podcast coming to you from Northern Seminary in Chicago, Illinois. We're sitting in the Griffith Conference room in the
1: North Northern Seminary Library. Library.
0: This is Jeff Folskow and Dave Fitch.
1: It's kind of a gloomy day, which brings me up to uh, which brings up the Stanley Cup Final, Chicago Blackhawks. How could you be gloomy
0: Will, when the Hawks just two
1: days ago? Well, what happened was okay. I was so into the uh, playoffs; every single game was stunning and amazing, beautiful, brilliant, vicious, fast hockey. Uh, the night of the final game, Game Six. Uh, we had a horrific s- rainstorm, tornado sirens. Yep. I got water in my basement. Oh. Uh, and I had to go. I, I was I was kind of alternating between basement duty and watching the series. Oh. And, and, and don't get me wrong. It was still great. It was still fantastic. It's still like, uh, you know, uh, highlight of the year in terms of sports. But, you know, come on. Did it have to rain that much on Stanley Cup final
0: week? I don't think so. But anyways. <laughs> All right, well, congratulations. You have been a fan of the Hawks through the many years of drought. Even when I lived in Canada, grew up in Canada, still a Hawks fan. Uh, The uh, reasons why that happened is long, but I won't go into it now, maybe sometime later. All right, so what is our topic for the day? Jumping into what we're doing.
1: Uh, Today
0: we're talking about uh, the art of bivocational. And we're having a, This we're is like a. The art. The art of bivocational. And this is like a little teaser podcast because on Saturday, June 20th, we're actually doing a whole kind of morning and early afternoon around this topic. Yeah, so 9 a.m. to 2
1: p.m. And, uh, you know, uh, there's so much confusion I feel around this idea of what it means to be a bivocational pastor, a bivocational minister. By ministerial pastor, whatever you want to say it, uh, however you want to say it, uh, that we just want to spend some time talking on a few topics, getting some angsts and anxieties out, and talking about how really you have to have a whole new imagination for what ministry is, what work is, what family is, what life is, in mm-hmm. order to be vocational pastor. So now, that's what that's all about.
0: Right. Now, for vocationalism, some people see this as a necessary evil, as a cultural reality, churches are becoming... Uh, lower funded, uh, churches becoming smaller, pastors need to somehow supplement their income, and so this is kind of, some people view it as a crisis, but on the other hand, it could be an opportunity, a way to rethink how we pastor, how we live in the world, how the whole church functions, so that's what we want to talk about today.
1: Well, one of the worst
0: things you can do is say, okay,
1: we want to keep on doing pastoring like we've always done it with one man or woman doing function A, B, C, D, and E, and F you know, preaching, visiting hospital, administration, dis- discipleship ministries, executive administration, blah, blah, blah. It's just we, we don't want to have to pay that said person to do all those things. So we're going to allow that said person to work half time at doing adding to their income and then doing all that with, with whatever time is left. That is a recipe, in my opinion, for disaster. And so I want to talk about why you shouldn't do that why you shouldn't even contemplate thinking about doing that. But actually, bivocational ministry is
0: a chance to reorient how we think about church
1: in its entirety
0: and the way it works. So it takes uh, two different perspectives changes. One is for the pastor or minister um, themselves and how they understand their lives. But there also is a shift for the church that the church needs to take. So let's take the pastor or minister or person who's thinking or needing to be bivocational how do they think about their employment, gaining skills, and organizing? Yeah, I mean, this, is a, com- this is a this
1: is such a complex issue. But you know, one of the first so let me just go at it like this. One of the first things I often hear by vocational pastors do is, "Oh, I'm going to go get a part time job, and then I'm going to go be a pastor." Uh, that is a recipe I feel for disaster because uh, you're always going to be financially uh, on the verge of bankruptcy any part time job is going to pay you what $10 an hour you're going to make very little money and you're always going to be struggling to make the bills and you're going to have if you are working at a church you're still going to be under the same financial pressures as you were before it's just it's just you need half as much money but still because you got half as much church or half as much time you're going to you're going to multiply the pressures there and so it really makes no sense so i want to say forget that Go into your job and your job skill as the means to make all the money you need to live and then work at that skill to the point where it becomes manageable, it becomes something you do very well, something you can control and God can use to bless you, flourish you as you submit it to his lordship and his kingdom. And out of that, offer the church 10 to 15 hours a week to function as a political organizer for the kingdom, to, to basically do the, some of the organizational functions that every church needs to grow and flourish as, as a community of the kingdom in the locale.
0: Now, in one sense, this is how churches all around the world function, as pastors and ministers, are, and whole churches are just trying to figure out a way to live, and so uh, after Christendom... After kind of the authority and position that the church has had for many years, the church really needs to rethink itself.
1: Well, the ministers
0: rethink themselves uh, as far as how they're going to live. And so, how do you organize Mm -hmm. your life so it doesn't feel like you have multiple lives spinning off out of control? Yeah, but rather it's a
1: unified life. Well, you. you know, I said 10 to 15 hours for one person, obviously, if. Even for a beginning church plant, that's not enough hours to really function and organize a group of people into his kingdom, present to what Christ is doing in the neighborhood. So you need at least three. You need three people who have, who know one another, who know one another's gifts, who know uh, how a pastor functions versus an evangelist versus an apostle versus a proclaimer or a and uh, a teacher, and together they work to lead their respective gift areas and they lead a community into mission. But that also entails that they're going to be empowering other people in their gifts or else simply the church will not function. And so, you know, it's a whole new way to think about uh, ministry, but I'll add this. You know, um, it is a strategy for mission. It is a strategy to engage and be present in local congregations, not to organize and efficiently run existing church organizations that have hundreds of people in them, or for that matter, 50 to 100 people. It's it's to organize and plant mission in places where we want to infest neighborhoods and locales with relational engagements of reconciliation, renewal, gospel, through relationships with people in the neighborhood. So it's a strategy for mission. It's not a strategy for how to run your local church
0: mm-hmm. on a lower uh, uh, on a lower budget. Mm. Right, and I think that's really important. It's a strategy for mission, not a way of managing kind of church finances and money. So, and we'll get back to how do we organize uh, leadership and things in a moment. Uh, but I think the trouble that we've had, you, know, you and I and others while talking about being bi is... Is just really giving people an imagination for doing this, what it actually looks like. And so how can, what stories do we have that we could kind of share of how this worked out? Because I, I, I hear people thinking in their minds, while well, listening to this or having heard us elsewhere, oh, yeah, that's great for Jeff and Dave who, you know, have cushy seminary jobs and they're professors and they're pastors at the same time, but mm-hmm. but how does this work in the real world? But I know that you by have the way, extensive – so why don't you share a little bit of your story. I can share mine or we could talk about others. Yeah. But I think we need to, we need to fill this out. Yeah, well, you know,
1: I think people should probably know that I became a theology professor, full-time theology professor, late in my life, when I was 49 years old. Uh, I was teaching part-time, but the fact of the matter was that uh, for the majority of my time in church ministry, I was uh, in financial services, and it's just a skill I learned uh, by starting at the very bottom of the rung, and I got very good at it through certain relationships, and uh, one thing led to another. I actually learned a lot about, oh, I learned a lot about how the world works. Or maybe I should say how the world doesn't work. The world, that part of the world that works in autonomy from God, how it works on antagonism and perverted desire and the desire for money, greed, wealth, power, sex, all that you'll learn on Wall Street. And it, it, you'll learn how it, anyways, I'm going, I digress. But the point is, uh, I started at the very bottom, barely making enough money to survive as a single man. And uh, I rose through. It took me three years to get any good at anything, and then I found my niche, and then I found a skill, and that skill became the thing that I used to start a bi- help start a business with some other guys, and, um, um, be, and and gain some flexibility and some ability to work in churches and ministries. Uh, and develop and actually start a church, Life on the Vine. So, um, yeah, I guess my main point there is in my own life, uh, I've tried to tell people, look, you're learning a skill and you will start out at the bottom often. And by dedicating yourself to learning that skill for a lifetime, you're going to carry that skill with you always, even when and if a church says, you know what, we've grown to such a point that we need you to devote your full-time energies to the church. You'll still know if you're an apprentice plumber you will still carry on that you'll still do a few hours a week you'll still keep up your apprenticeship license you'll be involved in the world you'll understand how people think and act you'll be a, a, a to put it uh, in a strange way you'll be a normal person with a normal job with normal stresses and you'll be able to speak in and be among the people that way. Speak to and mm-hmm. be with uh, the the the, every, the people that you're ministering
0: to. Now, I know a friend who he planted a church and then uh, a couple years into the church plant, he joined a construction crew and would work construction a couple days a week and just be able to say, I built that house, refers to this. And it was very much a, a, a life-giving activity to be able to, to have other things and to have a different frame of mind. Yeah. I know for me, part of my story into uh, being a bivocational vocational Pastor was, I had skills in the food service industry. I was a, a server uh, through college. And then uh, after seminary. You were a waiter. I was so a waiter. I was a waiter and waitress. And now it's, you know. A, oh, server. a server. Yeah, certainly. Welcome to the 21st Politically century. Politically correct. Yes. S- yeah. Server. Yes. So, Boy, um, so when, when I graduated. <laughs> when i graduated from seminary and uh dave was uh you know had pity on me and brought me on staff early on in life in the not bring you oh, right, all right so but i had to look and say well i have certain skills i've worked in these places what are the needs of my family part of it was needing to you know make some money but also we really had a need for health insurance and so i found my way actually to working at starbucks um and i worked my way up there uh, you know not making great money, but enough for our family at that point. Um, and we worked, I worked there for four years, um, no. you know, and so that was what I did uh, while doing other things at Life in the Vine. I mean, responsible in different places. And so that was just a small start. We both know different people who, um, you know, leave seminary or transition out of one job at a church, and now they're thinking, well, now what next? I'm looking to do church differently or plant a church. And there was kind of a large... Time span of needing to figure that out, which was frustrating. It was disorienting, right. and so when we advocate for bivocational pastoral ministry, it, we're not to say that it's all rosy and fun and honky tonk. It can be a difficult road. Well, there has to be a whole new set of
1: expectations and understandings as to what you're doing. I mean, a lot of people go into ministry for for a very dubious reason. I want to be successful. I want people to look at me. I want to. I want to be uh, the next. Uh, Billy Graham or uh, Mark Driscoll, dare I say, uh, or or whoever your particular idol is in ministry, and uh, what inevitably happens is uh, you end up building an empire for yourself, uh, and and some narcissism creeps in, and it begins, and, and these kind of organizations always generate. Uh, uh, a kind of an, uh, what do you call it, an in-drag towards the celebrity pastor. And we're not doing mission anymore. We're building an empire of already existing Christians for ourselves. We want to say there's another way to do ministry, and that is to go and be embedded in neighborhoods where there are lost people, people hurting, people outside the gospel. And here's where we can come to live the kingdom of God and invite the world into it. And that's going to take uh, almost like a, I call it a Che Guevara kind of a ministry. I have to, I have to have the ability not to succumb to the need to have a church pay my bills and me like bow kowtow to every consumer need a Christian has, which which creates a dynamic that works against mission. And right. that's right. That badge of honor, the She Guevara pastor missionary, his or her uh, badge of honor is a job skill. Do you know what I'm saying? Am I making sense? Uh,
0: why don't you fill that out? His badge or her?
1: His oh, or honor. her badge of honor. She, wear, she wears it uh, in a way like a lot of pastors think it's a step down to go get, let's say, a plumbing apprenticeship, get very good at plumbing, to the point where you have people asking you to come and fix their plumbing and you're making, oh, $35 an hour. A lot of people think that's a step down from being in ministry. No, knowing how to do that and support your family and live on that income is a badge of honor. You are now a a subterranean, subversive force for leading the kingdom against the powers and principalities that want to bring us down because we're always at
0: the mercy of those who can pay our salary. Does any of this make sense? (laughs) Yes, it makes a lot of sense. So, well, I think, you know, when you wander in and you talk amongst pastors of a certain kind of framework, you go to conferences, it's like, oh, you're just a, a part-time pastor, or I'm just a part-time... It, right? No, you are trust...
1: a Shea <laughs> pastor. You are right. a sh- revolutionary. So, you are an organic intellectual like we talked about in that last... a couple drop. times ago. Yeah.
0: So uh, just to leave off this one part where we're focusing on the pastor and minister before we talk about the church, there's a couple rays of hope here because you always tell people, hey, if you have been trained and by calling have the skills of a pastor, skills of communication... Skills of relationships, skills of even conflict management—these are these are valuable skills in corporate yeah. Worlds. I always say the soft skills, as they say in the industries, but they're kind of universally needed everywhere. And so, if you are able to communicate clearly, compellingly, be with relationships, listen and understand, speak speak back—those are those are things people need all the time. Right, right. Uh, so often, people like I started to notice
1: seminary graduates would think would say this. Oh, I have no other skills to get another job. It's like you go through a Master's of Divinity and you now become incapable of getting another job. If that's the just, fear. Yeah, that's if the fear. you had just gone, uh, let's say, out from uh, undergraduate, your, whatever your Bachelor of Arts was, and tried to get a job, you probably wouldn't be thinking this. But now for some reason, after you got an MDiv, I'm no good, I can't get another job. What I try to tell people is that that's just absolutely preposterous. You can now think... You can now read, write, and appropriate the material and, and, and apply it. You now can get up in front of people. A lot of, a lot of MDivs, because I took preaching classes, have the ability to get up and present information concisely to the point with presence. You, um, you actually know how to be with people, and I would argue you love people. You aren't entering the room to get something from them. This is what we uh, supposedly learn as being pastors. Take those skills, and they are some of the most important skills that can be adaptable. You can learn anything and do anything with those skills. And so I want to challenge everybody who's got these skills. You can go in and learn a business and get good at something and, uh, and, and free yourself up to be can I say, I know people are already getting irritated by me saying this, but you can be a Che Guevara, revolutionary <laughs> pastor, missionary
0: in the, in the world, in the mission of North America. We're going to have to change our logo there so we can capture the essence of this podcast. All right, so moving on to the second second part. Uh, how does this uh, affect or change a church? How does the organization of the leadership and/or the church's expectations? What needs to happen to make this viable? Or what? Also, what are the benefits? Do you see that? That have been. Uh...
1: Yeah. Well. Um, okay. So, very, very specifically, uh, most churches are organized so that the uh, leadership function organizes power to move in and up. Uh, Bivocational multiple, uh, what is what we call it? um, Polycentric. Polycentric polycentric, uh, leadership organizes power, authority to move down and out and among. So often, let's just say, if you have a church that's uh, typically, traditionally, functioning with a senior pastor, an associate pastor, three or four staff underneath him or her, uh, you know, and somebody starts to do a ministry in a uh, village tree neighborhood in Wisconsin, and they say, oh, we have this issue of domestic violence in like five of our blocks and we want to minister to the hurting spouses and blah, 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 blah. We need such and such resources. We want to meet in such and such a time, the best time. And and so what you'll do is you go into the church and up up the ladder of organization and ask for permission. And if it doesn't fit the vision of this one singular person at the head, uh, or at least the group that are the top, they'll go, oh no, wait, that doesn't fit our vision. You you have to stop, and there, and there you, you you the vision and mission is squelched. On the other hand, if you have polycentric leadership, and you have leadership that pushes the leadership out, you are all you can never do everything from the top down. You can never do it. You only have ten to fifteen hours, and you only have three or four people, and so you must depend on that person in village, tree, neighborhood. Timbuktu, Wisconsin to say you know what we want to empower you we're hearing you do this we think you've got the gift of evangelism to proclaim the gospel to those who are hurting, we think also you need so and so over here to help you with organization that person is a natural teacher organizer, so we want to put you two together and empower you to do this ministry and so ministry and mission gets pushed out and power and authority is dispersed outward because there's just not enough room at the top to get everything done
0: it's a natural dispersion of power and authority strategy mm-hmm. so uh for us really polycentric ministry and biovocationalism go together but polycentric churches that could that should be and will be its own podcast down the road so we don't have to spend too much time with that but there is a sense that you that as the the church ministry mission field grows that there's more things that need to be done and instead of having one person have that expectation to do all that work, to bring on someone else uh, to share that work um, actually, I think trains up the congregation to keep taking ownership, keep sharing, keep being invested and not getting, because I think the American church especially has a sense of after a while, Oh, the pastor will do that work for us. Yeah. But when the, and so in one sense, being bivocational is, is therapy. It's, ecclesial therapy for the North American church to say oh no your pastor is like you at work doing things having other commitments It can't do everything we're all, we're all in this together um, and so there's the need to change the expectations from the church but I also think it benefits even like practical ministry of preaching and things like that when people are out when, you're, when your pastor has office conflict just like you do and is preaching out of the same work experience that, that you are living that's so much more powerful than, you know, people who are just in their, you know, typical pastors, not typical, but some pastors who, what, teach all, uh, spend, you know, 20, 10, 20 hours on a sermon yeah. and they're study and they're disconnected from a workaday environment. And so yeah. I think it, it really keeps, uh, the, the pastor as well as the church accountable to be like, Hey, we all do kind of know what everyone's, feeling and doing because right. we're, we're under the same kind of stress and pressure and opportunities for mission, so Yeah, but, and I think it's really good. I'll close the podcast. This this podcast is going too long. But
1: I just... <laughs> often, no, we're right on time. Often you would say uh, or you, t- you would tell stories about people coming into Life on the Vine and they would ask, well, who is the pastor? Yeah, and uh, Ty Gregg would say something like, "Well, we don't have just one pastor." Well, who's the main senior pastor? And Ty Gregg would have to explain, "Sorry, we don't. We, we don't have." Well, and then Ty Grigg would sheepishly sometimes say, "Well, I'm one of the pastors," and that, they wouldn't be able to understand that, especially Ty Gregg, who's kind of like you know this pastoral kind of uh, very humble. He's deceptively shy. Okay, but he's not really, folks, if you ever come to Life on the Vine. He's don't, awesome. Don't let him fool you. Ty Grigg is <laughs> not shy. But the point is that Ty Grig would have to would see the reconfiguration of people's ideas of what pastoral leadership means uh, in the eyes of these people who couldn't find the one dude. And normally they would expect it to be a dude. The one dude who's in charge who I can look at and see if I want to come to this church. They would have to reconfigure and say, hmm, This is an alive body of Christ, which I must participate in to truly understand who the gifted people are, how I fit in, how I participate in the kingdom. I think that's great. I think it changes the culture of the church, and and I think that's important for mission.
0: All right. And so uh, as a quick reminder, this Saturday coming up soon, uh, June 20th from 9 in the morning till 2 in Westmont, Illinois, we're going to be having a much bigger discussion on all these things. Um, You can check the Theology on Mission Facebook page for more details. That's the art of bivocational. Now, but before we wrap things up, we have a couple little segments that we are uh, wanting to uh, have and keep doing. So the first one is Fitch versus Fitch. This is where we keep Dave Fitch accountable. Accountable. See, he doesn't even know. Accountable to his words from Facebook. And this is a complete surprise A complete surprise. He has no idea what I'm about to ask. And actually, we're doing it a different way.
1: If there's a sudden beep and silence after this question, please understand, folks, that, uh, yeah, you'll understand. Go ahead. So here we go.
0: With special help. On Monday, we said, if we say God is the author of the text, the plain sense need not refer exclusively to the literal sense. Doesn't this mean we're really liberals? How do you respond to yourself?
1: Oh, you know, uh, I can't remember what I was reading that given day, but... uh, Oh, I wish I could, but, you know... uh, So, the point is, uh, plain sense is not necessarily equal to literal sense. And sometimes we're overly focused on literal to the... uh, uh, and we don't recognize that God's the author of Scripture means that he's the continuing author of Scripture, and indeed God could have meant something in the text that the author who wrote it didn't know completely or understand. And therefore, there's a sense of of interpretation that goes beyond the intended literal sense, and it's the plain sense. And so, just to give you an example, I think Augustine, uh, I, I'm kind of... You, you caught me off guard. But, <laughs> that was the goal. But the point is, um, we can see Christ in in the Old Testament texts, whereas they couldn't see it at the time of their writing. But that doesn't mean we can't apply the plain sense that this is referring to Christ and the fulfillment of this promise, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's all. So it's just kind of a dig, and it has nothing to do with.
0: Uh, so that, so that, because in some uh, theological circles, it's the the mm-hmm. literal authorial intent. intent of the passage as we historically can best decipher, which if I, uh, which you think is a, is a worthy project but might not exhaust what God was doing in that text. Not yet, only might God, it and does before. not it exhaust. And, w- and sometimes
1: we have to be willing to listen to the text again and hear what God is doing over all of time, all, over the whole expanse of Scripture.
0: All right, well, speaking of texts... Let's enter into what are you reading? Uh, what are you reading, Dave? Well, um, you know, <clears throat> one of the books I've picked up recently
1: is uh, Why Priests? question mark A Failed Tradition by Gary Wills, who was a professor of mine at Northwestern many, many years ago when I was doing my Ph.D. there. And uh, he's a historian. He's also a Jesuit-educated uh, Catholic. He's one of these... Uh, radical Catholics in the in the lineage of kind of like Rosemary Radford Ruether, uh, but I just find fascinating what he, I think he's going overboard, but nonetheless, and he's. Hey, just like sometimes us evangelical fundamentalists go overboard in, in uh, totally trashing our own tradition, maybe Gary does that with Catholicism here. But having said that, there's some interesting historical tidbits that I'm picking up out of this book about how, you know, he's playing off of De Lubach, you know, Henri De Lubach, who's one of my favorite theologians, about how the Eucharist kind of got perverted with the whole transantiation and the focus on the elements as the body of Christ versus God, uh, Christ's presence with us, his body, uh, which had happens when we eat the meal together. I think that's so important. I think you got to understand that. What went wrong there? What was preserved there? Gary Wills' is Why Priests? Question mark Where he says we don't even need priests, not only helps us understand that, but helps us with some of the problems of hierarchy in the church, and that relates directly to what we've been talking about with uh, bivocational pastors. So my
0: recommendation, Why Priests? Gary Wills. It's a great read. Read it critically. Excellent. I'm reading uh, The Mediation of Christ by T.F. Torrance. It's a small little book that's just reflecting on how does Christ mediate God's presence to us? How does Christ mediate the the human life um, in and before God? Speaking of the mediation of revelation, the mediation of reconciliation. Um, And so just how does does the divine and human life come together in Christ and how do those things come uh, to us through him? So it's, it's a short little book. I'm, I'm using it uh, in preparation for my theology classes I'm teaching next semester. Yeah, yeah, and you are really into Christology. That's yes, that's true. Thing. That's my big my big thing. To, so, well, that's uh, that's it for today. Um, next time, we've been talking about uh, biolocationalism and polycentric leadership and things like that. We're going to be talking about leadership, but from the perspective of mutual submissions. so tune in for that one next time you can find uh dave and i on facebook and on twitter he's at fitchist and i'm at jeff Holsklaw. please find us on itunes and f-i-t-c-h-e-s-t that's the fitchiest of all the fitches uh until next time this is dave fitch and jeff holstclaw signing off from northern seminary see you next time